what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This episode of The Caregiver Community is sponsored by Pace at Home. During this uncertain time, Pace at Home is enrolling participants who wish to continue to remain at home. Partnering with families, Pace at Home provides caring medical support for all of our program's participants. Visit us on our website or give us a call at 828-468-3980 to talk with a representative that can discuss with you the Pace at Home all-inclusive medical approach. Pace at Home is the champion for seniors wishing to remain in their community. Welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents, as well as caring for ourselves. I'm Frances Hall, founder and executive director of ACAP, Adult Children of Aging Parents. In this podcast, we're talking about I'm not a caregiver, am I? The transformation from loved one to caregiver. I am delighted to have Donna Thompson and Dr. Zachary White as my interviewees. Donna and Zachary co-authored a wonderful book called The Unexpected Journey of Caring, The Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver. It is excellent, and it's about the profound part of caregiving journey that so many of us experience, but don't always recognize its impact. Donna and Zachary also were speakers at the ACAP Caregiver Symposium in 2022, and brought such affirmation and grace for the caregiver role. Donna Thompson is author, educator, blogger, speaker, and lifelong caregiver for her son and mother. She is the co-designer and facilitator of the online courses, Caregiving Essentials, and Family Engagement and Research, both at McMaster University. Hey, Donna. Hi, Francis. Dr. Zachary White is an Associate Professor of Communications in the James L. Knight School of of Communication at Queens University in Charlotte, North Carolina, and is currently serving as a member of the North Carolina Institute of Medicine's Task Force on Healthy Aging. Hi, Zachary. Good to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks. I am so glad we are exploring this topic as a podcast. So let's talk about this powerful, life-changing transformation of going from being a loved one to a caregiver. We all know that transformation and how powerful it is. So let's kind of start at the beginning and kind of put some framework on this. How do you know when you are a caregiver and why does that even matter? And I'll toss it to you all and whoever wants to start, go for it. Zachary. Well, I, I think this is more of a challenging question, Francis, than we might think, you know, because um, there's a different answer for whatever the number, total number of circumstances that are out there for people that are all distinct and different. And this is an invisible life transition. Most of our life transitions, our role transitions are marked by ceremony, by ritual, by expectation, even something like, you know, uh, getting married where there's a process and there's a set of cultural rights that go into that terms of people plan for it, look for it, there's celebrations, having a baby, even something like having a divorce, you know, not something that we kind of aspire to, but at least there's a public acknowledgement of it. And there's a ways, ways in which we can make sense of that and respond to it. 
because there's a, a, a way in for outsiders. But when it comes to caregivers, it is an invisible life transition because there are no clear marker for the moment in which you become a caregiver. Because we're talking about family caregiving, caring for a parent, for example, or a spouse. That moment is one in which um, you have a pre-existing relationship with that loved one. And Donna, we often talk about this as when care meets love, we kind of find ourselves in this newfound relationship. Yeah, and that newfound relationship can feel sometimes a bit like uh, a vat of warm water. (laughs) When care meets love, we fall in to the warm water. And that warm water is as care um, needs escalate uh, with a disease progression or with aging, uh, we find ourselves in water that slowly is heating up. And at one point, it becomes uncomfortable. And it's that touchstone, it's that transition from a relationship that is in the back of your mind that is so natural that you don't really think about it um, in a way that is feels oppressive or feels like a worry all the time. When that relationship, because of dependency needs, becomes front of mind, becomes something that makes you uncomfortable, something that is a cause of you know, worry, then I think we begin to realize that we are caregivers. And this can be expressed in a way that um, represents your life as a, as a pie shape. And normally, our care for our healthy, able-bodied family members is part, is a part of that pie and work and maybe church or hobbies and friends and fun and travel are other pieces of the pie of our life. But when caregiving begins to take over most of the pie of our life, then there is nothing else for it. We have to recognize that we are a caregiver. Donna, I I am such a visual person. I love your visualizations. In fact, a minute ago when you said about the warm water, I thought, yeah, but sometimes it feels like it's boiling, Boiling. you know, and that we have been thrown into it. And you make a reference about being drafted into, um, um, into caregiving. So not, you know, it's not, yes, we choose it in a way because we say yes to stepping up and being that person. But at the same time, we don't always say, oh, let me intentionally, you know, do this. Like I'm going to search out colleges, for example, and, and you know, make a decision about colleges. It's, we, uh, you know, I do a presentation that I say the phone rings and our lives change instantly. Yeah. Mm. It, we talk about it, Francis, as, you know, typically we step into roles that we want or desire or aspire to. This is a role that steps into us in so many ways, and it shapes us and shifts us away from what Donna was talking about, the parts of our experiences and relationships that we love the most and make most sense to us. And all of a sudden, you know, 
a person that we love and know so intimately can feel like a stranger. And then we start to believe that we're strangers to ourselves. And we find ourselves kind of lost in roles that others seem to recognize us in, but we no longer see ourselves in. That's so true, Zachary. And and Francis, we have a, a chapter in our book titled, I'm Not a Caregiver, yes. Am I? <laughs> right, right. And I think that what we were trying to express there is the ideas that Zachary has just, um, you know, described, but also this idea that to declare yourself a caregiver feels like a betrayal of love and and it feels as if you are betraying the dignity of the person that you're caring for because you have a pre-existing relationship with that individual, usually. Um, uh, and we're caring for people that we know and love and have known and loved for many years. In the case of parents, we have these pre-existing relationships with them that involve uh, certain unspoken relational rules. And it's, it's as if you're in a lane and you don't, you're not supposed to step out of that lane as, for example, the daughter to a very strong authoritarian father, for example. When you need to bring your father, that father, to the bathroom, this betrays the dignity and the roles that you've grown up with, with this individual. And Zachary, you know, you talk an awful lot about this in the book. I think you said it so very well. I mean, it, and it's almost as if... Um, that betrayal, Donna, doesn't happen just once. It's a repeated kind of betrayal that initiates a conversation with ourselves that no one else hears, but shapes us because we're breaking our unstated expectations about how we want to, how we prefer to relate to our loved ones. And we, at some point, perhaps along that care journey, Francis, we can't tell our loved ones because that would then put them in a very challenging spot because they may or may not be aware of the changes that are going on with them. And so it's this private conversation that so few are privy to. But I think for so many caregivers, this monologue is one that's remarkably loud and changes us. And it's almost like, like you said, that drafting component. It's not that caregivers, loved ones like us step forward. It's just some step back. And I think they're stepping back because of those fears and those anxieties and those uncertainties that go with how might this reshape my abilities with my loved one or my comfort level or my preferences. Absolutely. The, 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 um, the caregiving role is just, there is so much in there, both out other related as well as inside ourselves. Um, talk some, if you will, about the role of self-care. Um, how can caring for ourselves help maintain a sense of self in the care journey? How, how does all of that work? 
Well, I'll, I'll dive into this. This is a question that is really interesting to me. Um, like I'm sure many people listening, uh, I've been, I guess what you'd say in the trenches of uh, caregiving. And as I know you have, Francis, personally, and Zachary, you with your mom. And I think, you know, I've heard caregiving described as a series of tasks that erase themselves the minute they're done. And we, it's very difficult to think about self-care when the needs of another are so immediate, so pressing, sometimes even needs that relate to keeping a person alive. It's a life or death situation. And so self-care is something that is in talked about quite a bit these days in popular culture. Um, we see articles in magazines all the time, sort of like 10 top tips, how to look after yourself, have a bubble bath, book yourself a holiday. These are not realistic for people in the trenches of caregiving. And actually, it sort of makes you very resentful, even maybe angry to read these type of articles because they're so unrealistic and because they don't validate the true experience of, of caregivers. And often there's just nobody to replace us with the person we're caring for. So, so Zachary and I have thought a lot about how to incorporate self-care or ideas of self-care, tiny moments of self-care into the hardcore caring day. And so I think we do need to do two things. One is to talk to other caregivers. And Zachary, I'm going to hand it to you to talk about that in a sec. The other thing we need to do is find slivers of time in our day to reframe the idea of self-care so that it's not always out of reach. Self-care could be taking 10 minutes or even five minutes to do um, a puzzle, a Sudoku or Wordle or a little bit of a jigsaw that's always on the go in the living room. Something to sit down just for a few minutes. And then if you say, that's my self-care, you tell yourself what it is that you're doing is caring for yourself. So begin by taking a deep breath, sit down and take four minutes for yourself. This you know, tiny little bites, I think, is something that is worthwhile. You talked about that during the symposium, and it was just so poignant that, that yes, just those few moments can be really replenishing and restorative. Yeah, I think so. Um, I practice this myself, and um, it does make a really big difference. Um, I, I think so often what it is that we're thinking is, I wish I was somewhere else. I wish I was someone else. 
I wish I was doing something else. And in order to accept and relax into yourself, given the givens of your life and your role, we need to find opportunities to fill ourselves with relaxation and peace in our hearts for two minutes. But I think the other great wellspring wellspring of um, peace in our hearts and filling ourselves up is the company of other caregivers. And Zachary, I know you can talk about that. It is odd, isn't it, that when we're talking about self-care, that you and I believe that we must find others to achieve self-care in terms of the mm-hmm. second component. And so it's at a time in which we're remarkably vulnerable and want to at times withdraw from the world. And then we're left with our own voice. And so this is why we believe that finding relevant caregivers, that is, I say relevant, your family and friends are incredibly relevant and they are palpable, but they are around and they may not be the right audience to engage in the kinds of freedom and exploration that you might need with caregivers who get it, who get it more. Most importantly, they allow the exploration of self-kindness, which is essential to the kind of care that Donna and I are talking about. It's not just patting ourselves on the back. It's a freedom to think and respond and explore ideas and begin to think about and even laugh at and cry over our care experiences in ways that won't be labeled by well-intentioned friends and family as that's, that's depressing, that's gross, I cannot believe you said that, I cannot believe you thought that. That kind of thinking, well-intentioned, doesn't encourage a kind of mindful, non-judgmental, this is our reality and these are my thoughts. And so caregivers tend to be the best audiences for this because they are in the trenches as well. They understand it, that to laugh at our experiences does not mean to laugh at our loved one. In fact, we need the freedom and the opportunity to say and think so that we can continue caring with love rather than resentment. And this, Donna, I found so challenging to explain to friends and family who, well-intentioned from afar, will pick up the phone and ask you how you're doing. But the moment that you start sharing with them things that are not going in the way that they want it to be are going to redirect you. And so caregivers allow you to tell your story and revise your story and your thoughts in ways that exist rather than in ways that that family and friends need. But you know that is so true at the I mean before ACAP actually began um, I was working full time and a colleague I, I was caring for my mother and she was doing really pretty well at that point and a colleague was the caregiver sort of long distance for her mother, but we would start our day every day with what we lovingly called our mommy report, you know, and it was five minutes at the beginning of the day, just saying, what's the latest on your mom? What's the latest on your mom? And that was so important and so meaningful because exactly what you're saying, Zachary, we both got it. We understood. What the I love that was. example. It's so powerful. And um, it's enriching because it's not only about the person we're loving or caring for, it's it's about how we are evolving and changing and how there's a greater tolerance amongst caregivers for the radical inconsistencies that we may be feeling great one minute and horrendous the next. 
and that our nighttime might be smooth, but our morning is one in which we don't think we'll make it through. The rest of the world wants to say that a day is good or bad. A caregiver lives a thousand days in one day. What, what a great way of putting that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's talk a moment about some strategies that have worked for you all in terms of sharing the care in your own caregiving experiences. And, and I recognize that your caregiving experiences, as we say in ACAP, they're all the same and they are all uniquely different. You know, that that as sad and difficult as it was, Zachary, yours was a yours was for a certain period of time, mm-hmm. a certain season. Donna, yours joyfully um, and at the same time with difficulty, yours is ongoing. Um, so how do how do you do this? Well, how do you share the care? Mm-hmm. Well, it's in our family, um, I, as you mentioned, uh, care is ongoing uh, for me personally. And it began when I was a teenager with my father, who had three strokes and lost his speech and mobility. And then my stepfather, who had Parkinson's and passed away from that. Then Our son, Nicholas, who's 34 now, has um, cerebral palsy, and he is very medically complex. So we ran a home hospital for 23 years while he lived with us. And now he lives in a nearby care home with 24-hour one-to-one nursing care. So we're very, very fortunate. And then, of course, my mother. It was easier to share care for my mom um, because my, I have my sister. So my sister and I really were a tag team. And pretty quickly, we recognized in each other um, our different strengths. So my sister is impatient. And she was able to do sh- things that didn't take too much time very frequently. So she did all mom's bill payments. She dropped in with groceries. She, um, she, she, and she lived in the same city as my mom. I live three hours away. So when I came, I would stay for two days with my mom. I would talk to her, listen to her, joke with her, and hang out. I didn't do any of the other task-oriented pieces. I mean, I did a few things, but mainly I was there to give her a heavy dose of company. And my sister just didn't want to do that, couldn't do that, was busy with other things. But being the parent of a young man who is non-speaking with whom I talk all the time, we have codes, and I understand him perfectly. Um, It's easy for me, I've become a good listener. And um, I can thank my son for that, teaching me those things, you know. Yeah, so in terms of sharing the care, when needs are much higher, I have to say I made the mistake at the beginning of thinking I could do everything for 
Nicholas by myself, and I don't think anybody can. Uh, and then we began to have to have share care with paid helpers coming into the home, which is its own challenge. And then I began very slowly to ask family members to spend time with our Nicholas. And at first it was hard. Um, I told a story in the ACAP symposium. I think I told this story about my mother-in-law, my darling mother-in-law, whom I loved very much. Her name was Jean and we cared for her too. Um, and she looked at the situation in our house when Nicholas was very young and very ill, major surgeries all the time. And she said, Oh dear, if there's anything I can do, but I'm sure there's nothing I can do. (laughs) (laughs) And so she was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, I can't change a surgical dressing and he doesn't speak like normally. And I I don't, can't deal with this. So I I think I was very exhausted because we never slept in our house. And I said, Oh, Jean, do you think you could make us a banana bread? And she said, I would love to make you a banana bread. And so in that moment, she became empowered with being able to give us something we needed that she could do and that she was a baker. So she was baking anyway. And she realized that helping could be non-threatening. It was a revelation to her. That is such a great example, Donna, in so many levels. And and let me just contextualize this a little bit. And this happens to so many of us. I know what happened to me. When our needs are great, when we feel we're at the edge, we want someone to volunteer. We want someone to, especially those closest to us, our friends and family, to understand the depth of our needs and and to say, I'm going to take that on for you, or I can do this for you. I can see you're struggling with this. Let me help out. And what happens when that does not happen, we kind of develop a generalized frustration about friends and family. And then it's harder for us to see the gifts that they do have available to them to be able to help us because we dismiss them as my family doesn't help or they're they're not going to pick up the phone. That may be true in many of our listeners' circumstances. But your example, Donna, highlights that when we understand what we need, which is a big leap and hard to come to grips with, what is it that I need given the givens? And what is it my loved one, my friends, my siblings, family members can do in those circumstances? There is a reluctance sometimes to be able to name the need and then to find a person who can fulfill that for us. So it's so very challenging because uh, we become so accustomed to disappointment and then resign ourselves to doing on our own to the point of almost impossibility. And one more point about this, I'm kind of saying some unpopular things perhaps about friends and family, but I risk doing that because because I think that if we can get through some of this frustration about friends and family, we can see them for who they are and what they can offer and what they won't and don't. And one of those, Donna, we've talked about this before, is that you know I kind of had a welcome mat uh, philosophy for when I was caring for my mother with my dad. And this was open. Anyone could come and visit, especially, you know, when you move into hospice care or close to that. This is part of the reason for doing that. Until there's a moment in which friends and family, the people we invite openly into our homes, our spaces of living, 
we find that they may not be the right people for our loved ones, given their state of mind and their state of being. And I'll never forget walking in on my mother in, in absolute tears and horror, talking with what I thought was an incredible friend. And after the friend was eventually left the house, I, I kind of you know, told myself that never again, never again would I openly welcome all people into our home. Not because that person was bad, but because that person needed to get things off their chest seemingly or to say or do things that made them feel good. And I was left with a mother who was, you know, cognitively and physically incapacitated and yet now in a state of desperation and intense anxiety. So Francis, this is what I literally did. And I'm asking us just to think about this. I turned the welcome mat over. It said welcome on it. And I turned it over because I thought it was helpful for me. Not all are welcome into that space of love and care, even people with good intentions. And so I'm not encouraging people to close people off, but I, but to recognize that as caregivers, sometimes we have to make those tough calls for our loved ones and for our own emotional capacity and resilience. Thank you for the permission and the recognition of that, because you're absolutely right. I, I learned along the way that there are some people who are who are caregivers who are comfortable in that in you know in in that wide spectrum of tasks and activities and there are others who simply are not but the other thing that i learned is that that it is really exactly what you're saying Zachary it's really hard when you're so in the midst of it and so exhausted, it's really hard to identify anything beyond that very narrow lane, anything else that could be helpful. But the reality is banana bread is helpful. You know, just the slightest thing, um, that, that phone call just that says, I'm thinking about you. Just, just the most simple thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's so true, Francis. And you know, um, it's what I what I will often um, suggest to caregivers when I'm talking about advocacy, advocating for help, for example. I'll say, pick two or three tasks that you do that you would love someone else to do. Because there are many things that we don't want to give away in terms, they're too personal right. and they're too uh, risky to give to other people. So pick two or three tasks that you'd like to give away and then pick two or three people who you think could do those tasks quite easily. Because what we're talking about here is what I would call a clean transaction of care. It's, it's, a, it's a small gift to your family that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I think many people, when they, I think my mother-in-law, for example, said, when she said, if there's anything I can do, but I'm sure there's nothing I can do, she was so worried about getting sucked into a vortex of need. What a great point. Yeah. You know, and if you just give one thing, could you deliver a meal to our, my doorstep once every two weeks? Something that has barriers around it. 
so that it, like, as I say, it's got a beginning, a middle and an end. And then I'm done. I've done my helping role. And I think people are much, much more prone to saying yes to requests that are like that. You know, that's such a great point that the people want to help. I, I they really do. believe they want to help, but they don't know how. They don't. They don't have a clue. And even if you've been a caregiver, you may have more of a clue. But every situation is different, and so what may work for me and may have been helpful for me may not be helpful for you. Um, the, so, the, I'm sorry, Francis. The, the other the point, other thing, though, because go ahead. The other thing, the other part, the other angle of that is if anyone is listening who is, who knows someone who is in a caregiving role, how lovely it would be for them to say, could I bring you banana bread? Could I bring you a meal? You know, to initiate that just because when we are in the trenches, sometimes we are so consumed with the, the, the immediacy that we really literally don't have the energy to think about anything else. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate this, this part of the conversation, or this whole conversation, but particularly the part of how can people help us, help us do what we are trying to do. It's such a great point because it goes back to the original question that started the conversation about wanting to kind of own the caregiver label or not. And I think that that's part of the challenge is that, um, you know, if, if we're, if we just have the pre-existing label, we, we believe that we can do things for our loved one, then that's part of our special relationship. But when we add the caregiving experience into our pre-existing relationship, there are needs that may go beyond the bounds of our capabilities. And as you say, Francis, there's a reluctance on our part to be able to articulate where we might need help and or when others can help us. It does take time and it takes a lot of energy of thought, which we may not feel that we have capability, but um, that is an invitation because the clean transaction of care that Donna talks about is so valuable because think about your lives before caregiving you also perhaps wanted a clean transaction of care. You have a life and you have family members and all these other things going on and work. And then to be dragged into the vortex that Donna said, if someone gives you the opportunity to mow a lawn or to pick up mail or to engage in some other capacity in which it's very specific and focused, then I think that that provides others the feel good of helping and also Donna, from the caregiver side, it gives us the perspective of they are providing value and they feel that they're a part of this experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. Something that I've learned quite recently in the last year, uh, I, I, I find this a revelation and I want to share it with everybody today. I have uh, a girlfriend who has a diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. She's younger than me. And um, yeah, it's tragic. And so she is losing the capacity for conversation. And she has a circle of friends. uh, And at first, um, we were 
sharing a rota of visiting with our friend with the diagnosis every Thursday afternoon. And so everybody would have like once a month to visit. And it was becoming harder and harder to be alone and keep a conversation going. And it, I think people began to feel anxious about the visits. I know I did. And so what we started doing was going in pairs. And I can't tell you how much easier it is to visit someone with a communication impairment as a, as a pair. So um, we love these visits now because it's a circle. It's, it's a threesome and a circle. And our friend who has uh, Alzheimer's can, ch- can chime in when she's able, but the responsibility for car- carrying on the conversation is not fully on her shoulders. This would have done my father so much good. It would, and, and I, now I'm thinking about um, when we visit Nicholas totally differently and organizing companions for him too. It is really something, this idea of two. I think that is brilliant in so many ways. First, it reduces the uncertainty from those visiting that, that what am I going to say? Do I have to carry the conversation? What if there are awkward silences? And, you know, you also bring up this point, Donna, that maybe some of the listeners and experience, you know, as we're trying to think about our loved one and we see them before and after visits, you know, sometimes visits are for other people as much as they are for our loved one, depending on how that day is going or the state of care or the state of their physiological condition. I know I found for my mother's sake that oftentimes the she loved having visitors, but at certain point it became the recovery from the visits became so challenging because my mom was someone who wanted to be up for another, who wanted to perform, not that she was okay, but she wanted to listen and learn about people's lives. And so, like you say, bringing another person and also creating some parameters, some informal parameters that reduce people's concerns about visiting. For example, you're going to come with someone and a 30 minute visit, you know, and that time frame is not, um, you can only stay for 30 minutes. It just gives people an idea that you're not asking them to spend 12 hours at your house Mm -hmm. or place of residence you know, doing whatever. And once again, it's a clean transaction in terms of what's expected of me, who's going to be there, because there is a fear, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, about the kinds of things that that bother people outside the care world. And that is, what do I say? What do I do when there is not words to be had? And what's happening if the person I'm visiting is not in the condition I thought or want them to be in? It's sometimes really difficult, Donna, for people to kind of negotiate those scenarios. It really is. It's, it's territory that we're not used to. Uh, it's, it's deeply um, disorienting, I think. So having that buffer of another person is extremely helpful. Um, so I would suggest, uh, I would do this for my own family member, that if I wanted help and I wanted to reach out and I wanted someone to come keep my mother, for example, company, I would now, I would now knowing what I know, I would ask two people to come. Great advice. And so, you know, 
we know that caregiving changes the our care relationships fundamentally. What does this mean, though, Donna, for us as we kind of find ourselves perhaps in the caregiving role after it ends in, in whatever capacity that is? You know, what happens to us and how we think about ourselves and our loved ones when the care role and relationship ends? Well, I think one thing we know for certain, and anyone who has cared, given care over a period of years, particularly if that caregiving has been quite intense, we know that this experience profoundly changes us permanently. We are transformed by this experience. And many times family relationships are transformed too. Uh, I think that after caregiving, we have an opportunity to consider what did this mean to me? What, who am I now? What just happened in the last 10 years of my life? How have my values changed? How have my preferences changed? Who is in my closest circle now? compared to who was in my closest circle before caregiving. I think we have an opportunity after caregiving to have a major reassessment of our own lives, our own values, our emotions, the things that matter to us most. Those things have changed. And I think it's a fascinating inquiry. And you can have that inquiry in groups of other caregivers, because people want to know the answers to these questions. We want to roll over these questions in our minds, and we want to be able to share with others and learn from others what has changed in you and what has changed in me. You know, Donna and Zachary, I just was on a conversation yesterday and it didn't hit me until you're talking about this. But I was on a conversation yesterday with a woman who was an attorney and she said 20 years that she was an attorney. And then she took some time away to care for her mother-in-law. And after her mother-in-law's death, exactly what you're saying, Donna, that she said, so what does all of this mean? And, and how have I been changed? And she said she left her law practice and became a realtor uh, with the designation of SRES, this um, uh, senior real estate specialist designation, and absolutely loves what she is doing now. But she said because of the experience of, of caring for her mother-in-law, that her world just completely changed. That's such a great example, I think, of the, in the midst of caregiving, it's oftentimes hard to reflect and make sense of the kinds of values that you and Donna are mentioning in terms of how we're evolving throughout the process. Um, our life circumstances change as caregivers. Our care experiences change. Our values become somewhat timeless. And so it is that inventory time that Donna was talking about to really take heed of who we've become. And then one way to begin articulating this new sense of self is to share the values and the ways of knowing and being in the world that you have learned only because of caregiving. And, and that I think is profound because sometimes 
you know, Donna, you mentioned the word disoriented. We use that word a lot in our book because I think it is so characteristic of what happens, especially after the caregiving experience in which the return back to our former selves is no longer possible. Hopefully, we realize that we don't want to return to who we were. We see and experience the world in ways that only we have insight of because of our experiences. And that that's a reason to connect. It's a reason to advocate in the community. It's a reason to reach out to others. It's a profound life changer when you take the moment a moment to recognize all that you've been through and all the ways in which that has changed you. Yeah, I could venture to say too that I like people better who have been caregivers <laughs> because I have more in common with them for yeah. one thing, but also because people who share my values, I, I get along with. And mm-hmm. I more than someone who just cares about their next car mm-hmm. and their next holiday and their next promotion. Yeah. I just don't, I'd rather know about your mom. I'd rather mm-hmm. know about the things that matter most in your life. Right. Right. It makes a difference. We, we, uh, you know, not necessarily that we be, that we become completely different people. We bring all that we have experienced into this moment, both the caregiving world as well as after that that particular part of our life possibly has ended. Um, this is such a great podcast. I, I just keep thinking, oh, my word, we could talk for hours. There is so much in this. But I am so grateful for, for your being part of this conversation and helping our listeners really understand that, that the journey of caregiving, particularly if we are moving from a loved one to a caregiver, there's just so much in that. One of the things that I want to, to say, and I, and I think it's coming through with, with everything that both of you are saying, but in that profoundness, there can be some sweet times. There can be some holy times, even in doing the most intimate, um, hands-on caregiving. So I never want to leave people with the idea that it is just a burden because it is not. And the the profound impact on our lives truly can last the rest of our lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a key to the greatest intimacy that people can experience Yes, it's hard to achieve the level of intimacy that we have if there isn't someone in your life who needs care. And it stays with you. That that part never ends. That that there is no expiration date to those experiences and what they mean to That's you right. and for you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You all, thank you so much for being part of part of the ACAP world. <laughs> now you are part of the family. Um, thank you so much for for what you did with the symposium and with now the podcast. I, I just am so appreciative. Um, thank you for the gentleness, for the care that you that you bring to all of these conversations. I also want to thank you, our listeners. 
We hope this podcast has been helpful and that you will share it with others you believe may benefit. Before we end, we certainly want to say thank you to Pace at Home in Hickory, North Carolina, our sponsor for this podcast and all of our podcasts. We are indeed grateful for your support. This program is part of the Mesh Network of online shows and podcasts. You may find more of our Caregiver podcast on any of the platforms where you listen to podcasts. You will also find our podcast on our website, www.acapcommunity.org. While you're on our site, we hope you will take a few minutes to learn more about ACAP, our educational programs, and our local chapters. And if there are other topics you would like for us to address as a podcast, please do let us know. As we say so often in ACAP, regardless of our age, our background, our education, our career, or anything else, when it's our mother, our father, our loved one who needs help, caring for and advocating for that person becomes very personal and extremely important. Please care well for your loved ones, but also remember to take care of you. Stay well. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.